Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Rodney Richter, enterprise architect at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise and member of the LF Edge Technical Advisory Council. Rodney has been with HPE since 2015 and previously held numerous positions over 19 years with AT&T, including principal network planning engineer responsible for AT&T wireless and wireline access network virtualization. In this interview, Rodney takes us through the technological and logistical challenges of implementing edge solutions at the enterprise level, the thinking that led HPE to develop an entire product line of edge servers, the types of use cases that are getting traction today, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Packet, an Equinix company. Packet is the leader in bare metal automation. They are on a mission to protect, connect, and power the digital world with developer-friendly physical infrastructure and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem that spans over 55 global markets. Learn more at packet.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Rodney Richter, Enterprise Architect at HPE, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Rodney Richter, Enterprise Architect at Hewlett Packard Enterprise and a member of the LF Edge Technical Advisory Council. We're going to talk about Rodney's career in technology, his work on mobile networks, and his current role, where he works on HPE's joint program with AT&T and the future adoption of Edge solutions. Hey, Rodney, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing terrific. You know, one of the things that I like to find out from people before we start talking about Edge and all this detailed stuff, just how how did you even get involved in technology? Well, my technology goes way back, probably when uh, I got out of high school and I joined the Air Force. So I, I always had a knack for technology and electronics, and I joined the Air Force out of high school and, and got involved in electronics and supporting all the systems on F-16 aircraft. And I was part of a F-16 fighting squadron in southern Georgia. And so, you know, everything from RF technologies to lasers to uh, terrain following, well, it was terrain following radar and then in forward looking infrared, all those kinds of systems, right? So that kind of kicked off my career. And naturally, I just wanted to continue that in electronics, got my degree in electronics, and then eventually um, ended up with uh, one of the, uh, the major telcos, AT&T. So how long were you at AT&T? Uh, about a 20-year career there. I started in 96 and uh, went through until 2015. And what were your primary roles at AT&T? So uh, primary roles, as I look back, it was starting off in what was building their long distance network with one of the local operating companies, Ameritech, back in the day. So that was supporting all the functions of you know the old telco calling information systems and and then eventually got into computer-based support, server storage, networking, supporting customers, internal customers within the phone company. And then I also got involved with network planning and engineering at AT&T for about eight years do, supporting video platforms within AT&T, and then um, some software-defined networks and looking at what was AT&T's Domain 2 effort to move from legacy systems to you know, their new technology, software-defined, looking at you know, how do you evolve your networks for the next technologies, especially moving into where we're at today, 2020 and beyond. You know, it's it's interesting. You and I are probably close to the same age. And, you know, 
I grew up with rotary telephones. Yes. And uh, phys- physical switches. And, you know, we were joking before the podcast about dial tone. They're, they're actually little machines that sat in, in the, <laughs> sat on the local loop and generated a tone that you knew you could actually dial, uh, and which is such a different world. So you were right there in the transition to IP-based networks. What was that like? Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting because it was at the time. You know, t- today we're all there's a lot of openness, right? About you know being able to do a lot of collaboration, do look at you know what things can be created and developed in an open uh, community. Um, back then, it was you know there was a a lot of taboo about openness. And so, you know, when you look at the evolution from those old networks to to the IP-based, um, we looked at, you know, we wanted uh, resiliency. We wanted to ensure that everything was going to work as expected. So, you know, didn't didn't want to bring in a lot of the openness at the time. But moving to IP networks was a challenge because you had to look at how do you evolve from an analog world to a digital world. And nowadays, a lot of it, is moving towards, you know, obviously we're in an IP-based world, but now we're in a technology world where how can we leverage community to be able to expand what's capable as well as be able to bring that in and and look at what technologies and offerings can bring value to the business and to customers, right? And by having that open community really is, is a big advantage. Yeah, I you know I I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, open source on the the scale, the time scale that we're talking about is relatively new. I mean, there was, you know, Richard Stallman open source, which is everything should be free, which is very different from, you know, the <laughs> Linux Foundation open source and modern modern open source. And I can see the I mean, I worked for software companies where the idea of giving away your software was just completely crazy. Um, and I imagine, like you described, the the it, the proprietary everything was very hard. So what what was that transition like? Like what what drove that transition, and how long did it take? And and where are we now? Because AT and T is a is a is a big contributor to open source, uh, part of the LF Edge, a big part of the LF Edge, and a bunch of the other open source initiatives, and obviously Hewlett Packard Enterprises as well. Can you just give us a little history lesson on? what it was like to transition to open source and why it was seen as important, even though it was a little bit of a, you know, is the body going to reject the organ transplant? Right. It's probably been kind of a, a slow adoption, if you will, because if I look at my 20-year career at AT&T and, and looking back, as I mentioned, you know, things were a little bit more taboo. Like, you know, if I had a, a tool or something that I wanted to use to be able to monitor something and it was an open source tool, could I bring that into the network? Was it a security risk? Was, you know, kind of that mentality um, way back when? And, you know, there's still always concerns over security. But if you look at, and I'll, I'll take kind of that 20-year span, it progressed year over year where, you know, how do you adopt new technologies and how do you drive cost savings into, you know, your business? And with proprietary technologies, there's an inherent cost in doing that. Obviously you have the assurance to some degree that you're going to have things that are going to be secure. You got one vendor you're going to be dealing with if it's a proprietary solution and you know that that software is going to work on that hardware, et cetera, right? But in doing so, you're somewhat locked in. So to move to an open source model gives you the capability to evolve that to driving down cost. And so getting back to the history or, or you know that 20-year that span, 
is I've seen it kind of go in probably about five year increments, I would say, where originally it wasn't, you know, very well adopted to, okay, let's bring a little bit in over the next few years. Let's test it. Let's make sure it's secure, get a comfort level around it. And then probably within the last 10 years is where we really saw the explosion of what's happening more and more involvement in the open community. As you're well aware, AT&T is involved in things like Acrano, you know, and, and other areas and really a, a sounding board for other industries to be able to leverage and use open source to help drive that adoption. So, I mean, I've been seeing that as, as I'm part of the LF Edge TAC and um, also see what's happening in Acrano, working with AT&T. So that's where I see it's been, has been over the last 20 years. So I often talk about the economics of shared infrastructure, and I'm typically thinking about, you know, buildings and fiber optic lines and networking equipment and all of that. And But there's also, I think, a direct analogy with open source. And I think other industries, too. You know, you think about, you know, if I'm a trucking, in, a trucking company or a, a company like FedEx that delivers packages, like I'm unlikely to see any benefit from building my own roads or my own airports. And all my competitors probably feel the same way. And in those cases, we had the government come in and do it. Um, but a lot of times the government isn't as fast as we need. And so it, it seems like a lot of these entities, uh, you know, many of them open source, but also some of them private, like my, my company's business is private, but it is very much neutral, neutral host, neutral carrier. Uh, but the idea that you can leverage work from other people collectively, but still create enough differentiation on top. It's a very powerful concept. And I think it's, I think we're going to look back you know, in a hundred years, and it's going to it's going to be a major contribution to the accelerated technology is are these common platforms that we've all agreed to share. And the patent system was a little bit like that, right? Like I'll tell you how I did something, but I get an eighteen year exclusive. And open source just recognizing like eighteen years is you know, <laughs> it's it's a a lot can happen in eighteen years, and so we actually need other systems. That's that's a, a very important. But we'll come back. We'll come back to shared infrastructure and business models because I I know that's that's something that HPE has spent a lot of time doing. Sure, and and one point I'll make just you know I, I think on the open source side, it's more of a complement to what's available. I don't think it's an end all to, you know, an entire solution. You see a lot of um, proprietary solutions that have plugins or APIs to be able to plug into various different applications, et cetera. So I, I think you're going to see a, a hybrid approach to to solutions. Yeah, that, that seems to make a lot, a lot of sense to me. So, so tell me about the transition from AT&T to Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Sure. So, um, it was probably in 2014, 2015, when I was just looking to uh, do something a little different. As I mentioned, I spent about 20 years uh, working for AT&T in various capacities and decided to join Hewlett Packard Enterprise. I had moved from the Midwest down to the Southeast. So that was a, a bit of a, a change for me. And I did spend uh, about three years in the Air Force down in Southern Georgia. So moving to to Georgia back in 2015 was was a bit of a a change just from having to move across the country with a family at the time that was, you know, my kids were somewhere in high school, somewhere middle school. And moving from more of a, in my job role, which at AT&T was more of a architecture network planning into joining the sales team at Hewlett Packard Enterprise on the AT&T account. And so I had never been in sales before, but I was, I've never had any issues doing any any type of position. I've, I felt like I could always 
you know, learn anything. And, you know, it's, there's certain skills that just as a person, you know, being able to interact with different people, that's something that can't necessarily be taught. And so, you know, I always had a knack for working with people, understanding technology, understanding business and being able to, uh, to do that. So moving into Hewlett Packard Enterprise, coming into the account team and working with what was my colleagues, right? I had worked with a bunch of people at AT&T, when I was at at and and now they were my customers. So that was uh, definitely a transition. Um, it was great to be able to have those relationships. It changes the dynamic when, you know, you go from being a, a colleague to now you're, you're a supplier, vendor, uh, solution provider. So, but definitely, you know, good relationships uh, still exist. And um, it was really a learning challenge for me for, for the first two years, getting into sales for the first time. So that was uh that was good. But now I'm a seasoned salesperson. Um, I'm a technologist within the sales team. So, so I focus a lot on the technology. So like the solution architecture and uh, technical sales and things like that? Exactly. Looking at, you know, what's the infrastructure? What's the applications? How do you, you know, ensure that things are going to work from a, an end-to-end solution? Taking more of a holistic approach to, you know, if somebody says, hey, I need uh X amount of servers to serve a, an application, we want to look at it from, like I said, more of a holistic approach of, okay, what does that end-to-end solution look like? Because if you place a piece of compute into the environment or, or a piece of storage, unless you know what's happening end-to-end, you may not know exactly what's required. Are there going to be security protocols that need to be put in place that you might not think about unless that application is connecting from point A to point B? You know, How do you have to segment your network? Do you need to look at other connections? What are the customer's security measures they want to put in place that might impact the, the infrastructure you're putting in place? All kinds of different variables come into play. And, that, and that's really kind of where I come into, into the role to be able to talk with the customer, understand what they're looking to do, and help them develop that solution as well. Yeah, and, and I realize, obviously, some of this uh, you won't be able to talk about in detail because of the confidential nature of the relationships. But I'm wondering if you can walk us through an example or two of some of the problems that you were presented with and how you identified the end-to-end problem and delivered solutions to that. Are there any that you can talk about or even if you have to genericize them a little bit? Yeah, actually, um, let's see if I can think of one and try to think if it's uh, something I can share. An exa- I'll, I'll give you an example and I'll, I'll keep it generic, is a, a video analytics solution. And um, in that situation, they were looking to implement video analytics and run that through an edge solution where there may be cameras that are going to be capturing video of public places. And um, in doing so, the cameras are going to sit on a, a public network or at least a, a network that's not part of a private network. So you have to worry about security and access from those cameras to the internal network. But then when the video is being processed locally on the edge device, you also need to be able to give access to the end customer that's going to be using this device. So think about could be, you know, in a public space, in a campus, arena, whatever it may be. And, and so that end customer that is actually implementing it also wants to be able to view the video and view the, the analytics that are coming from that device. So you have to look at Again, you know, the firewall between, let's say, the customer's network and the network provider's network, as well as any of the suppliers that might come in to be doing services to support that solution. 
And so that's that's where you have to really look at what is the architecture that's being put in place. Because when you start looking at the data flows of not just the video, but also support services for people that are going to be maintaining the systems as well as any other data flows, that architecture could change based on where the data needs to flow and as well as the latencies and the bandwidth capabilities, all of that comes into play. Super interesting. So, so let's let's do this. Let's do this. It'd be kind of fun, I think. Let's design a hypothetical system. All right. Not one that's tied to anybody in particular. Okay. So let's say we have a campus. I, I, UC Berkeley is right down the street from me. And let's imagine that because of our concerns for safety and other things, we want to uh, place a bunch of cameras around the campus and utilize the data from that campus. And like we have multiple vendors that might do image analysis or security, and maybe I need the, the campus police to get access to it and so on. Let's envision this. So where, where do I even start? Yeah. So you, you're going to start by having a conversation with the customer about what are their goals? What are they looking to achieve? And, you know, you're going to have to take a look at what are the areas at, at that campus that they want to monitor, right? So if, if you're saying, you know, at the campus, it's, you know, how many locations is it going to be the, the dining facility? Is it going to be, you know, in, in one of the auditoriums or, or wherever it may be? That's part of it. Okay, we've identified, we've, let's just make this up. We've identified 100 locations, some of them indoor, some of them outdoor, but all sort of public where there's no expectation of privacy. Um, some of them may have like a Wi-Fi, many don't, some are outside, some are going to be on the top of a pole or maybe mounted to a tree or the side of a building. Like, now what do we do? So usually it involves bringing in a, a partner who does the video analytics to do a site evaluation. Uh, you know, usually we'll have a conversation initially on the phone, but you know, eventually it turns into a site evaluation to, to look at those 100 locations. And then what type of video or what type of services are you looking, what type of analytics are you looking for? And then from there, we work with the partner on establishing, based on the, the customer input for what types of video and what type of analytics they're looking at doing, how much compute resources are going to be required, what types of networks are going to be required. So if you're using Wi-Fi, if you're using wired, or if you're using a, five, a 4 or 5G type cellular connection, that's going to have dependencies, as well as you know any of the, um, the security measures that need to be put in place, as I mentioned before, for firewalls. And you start building a solution, and you start with a, an initial rough draft design that's going to say, okay, based on those 100 locations, based on the type of analytics and data collection you're going to be doing, you're going to need X amount of compute, X amount of storage to be able to process that at the edge to give the customer what they're looking for, whether that's people counting, whether it's geofencing, whether it's any other video analytics you want to do. Um, going from there, you then refine that design by looking at having those discussions around the data flows. Who needs access to which components? Again, if you get back to you know vendor doing a support of the system versus a network provider versus the the client, the university themselves, who needs access to what and where, and then ultimately from a uh, relative real time capability, what are the KPIs that they need to be able to make that a a functional system, and and you put that all into the solution. So picking and choosing the types of infrastructure, picking the type of networks is all going to be dependent upon. Every, all of those components, you know, especially the KPIs. If they don't care about having video in real or real time, but maybe they want it near real time, and they're going to store some offsite, then that's one thing. But if they're going to store everything onsite at the edge, that changes the dynamic of the type of infrastructure and the type of networks you need to be putting in place. 
Yeah, so let's let's double click on some of that. So in this hypothetical instance where I'm responsible for deploying all these cameras at UC Berkeley, you know, you mentioned private versus public networks. How should I even think about what? So what is a private network versus a public network, and how should I be thinking about that um, as a as as someone who's looking to install video analytics? Sure. So you know, public would be you know anything that might be internet connected, internet routable. Private is going to be the university's own network where you have to be on the university's network to be able to gain access to it. So you couldn't access it through the, the internet unless you were going through, like, let's say, a VPN or something like that. And I'm sorry, the other half of your question? <laughs> I was relying on you to remember that. <laughs> um, well, so I, was, I was asking, how should I think about um, a private versus public? Where I really wanted to go with this, Rodney, is I, I wanted, you know, when I think of public networks, I think of like Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and so on. And I think of a university, a university environment. I mean, I imagine that the university network has grown organically and probably was not built to accommodate real-time video analytics. So are there suppliers that can just give me a network that it, that has security, whether it's public or private, but can actually like build my network for me for this video analytics? Are there companies that do that? And, and how would I, who would they be? And how would I even think about involving that versus like extending my own network into this space? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you kind of mentioned it. You know, with the uh, the service providers, the the AT and T, Verizon, uh, you know, other companies that do the network services type of um, services, and those networks can be, you know, a private network for the customer. Whether they're, you know, building out a, a wireless network, you know, you see this in public spaces all the time, where you know you go into your local coffee shop and they have, you know, free Wi-Fi, right? That's more of a public approach, but then there's the, you go into the, the university bookstore or you go in, a better example is going to be, you know, the university classrooms where they're going to have their own Wi-Fi network that's separate. You can't access that from outside. And so to be able to build that, you're going to be working with a network provider on those networks and, and what's required for, for the amount of services that are required, you know, how many students are going to be using it, how many faculty are going to be using it and building it out there. Now, in terms of the video analytics and what you want to do there, it really comes down to the requirements of the application. Well, let's, let's say that, that, that I'm really ambitious, right? So I want a system that can do real-time analysis. I want it to be extensible so that like, I, don't, I don't really know what I'm going to need, but I want to be able to, be able to add capabilities to my, net, my analysis pretty quickly. I don't want to maintain the network, you know, and let's say that it actually has to accommodate crazy stuff. Like I want, you know, I want some cameras mounted on some of the security uh, golf carts that I, that we drive around at night to keep students safe. And so there's, there's gotta be some mobility. So I'm going to hire somebody like AT&T or somebody like that to, to provide me with a network that has all the security and all of the, the mobile handoff and all that clever stuff. And then like what happens? And I realize that mobile edge computing or multi-access edge computing, depending on how long you've been familiar with the Etsy standards, how that fits in. So describe to the audience the different big building blocks and then how mobile edge computing can help me solve some of these problems. Sure. I'm going to kind of break that into three parts because you talked about Mac, Etsy, Mac, et cetera. You're asking about the golf cart scenario. And um, it really depends on the network provider on you know whether they want to follow Etsy Mac or if they want to do their own kind of solution for 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 Mac for multi-access edge compute, and 
I'm not going to really get into the the debate over whether it should be Etsy Mech or if uh, if uh, if they want to do their own because it really really comes down to being able to provide a service to the customer. And I, under the covers, I don't think the the customer really cares what architecture or what standards was followed as long as it provides the same experience to the customer. So then if we get into your experience with the golf cart and put a camera there, you have to look at how do you get the video streamed wirelessly from the golf cart to some fixed network that can actually pick that up. So you could do Wi-Fi, you could do a cellular network. If you're close enough, you could do Bluetooth or you could do you know um, any other of the wireless technologies, right? In that situation, I'd probably be looking at probably a cellular network simply because you're probably outdoors not going to be doing that many wireless access points. You may, maybe. It depends. You know, and the campuses do have that. So I would say it would either be Wi-Fi or cellular for that connectivity. But then once you get beyond that, you're going to come into a, a fairly fixed network that's going to aggregate that data, the video traffic from those cameras. And then you're going to send it to an edge device for processing. That edge device is going to sit fairly close to the edge of that fixed network to be able to aggregate and process that data, especially if you're looking for any artifacts within the video. You know, Maybe you're looking for security purposes and you want to identify specific characteristics of that video. It could be the color of the clothing, could be the the shape of the object, whatever it is. You know, If you want to keep track of all your golf carts, you could look at the shape and identify and put it through a, uh, a machine lear- learning alg- algorithm to be able to identify, hey, that's what a golf cart looks like versus you know, a car or a truck, et cetera, right? But getting back to the, the architecture is within that edge device, it's going to process and store the video that's been analyzed and be able to present that to whoever is viewing it. And it can do a couple things in real time or near real time. It can trigger based on whatever you've programmed it to do to send alerts. It could um, notify authorities if you wanted to do something from a, a security standpoint, or it could just go into a, a, uh, a system for reporting that sends a report to somebody to say, hey, um, this is what we've noticed in your video wanted to make you aware of what's going on. So a lot of different things that can be done there. Right. And you mentioned the um, Mac or not Mac and, and and all that. So help us understand what is the purpose of a multi-access edge computing? Like what, what is that? That's a lot of words. What, what does it actually mean? How do I use it? And, and why should I care if it's a proprietary mechanism or a, a standard coming out of Etsy or not? So I think for the standards coming out of Etsy, it gives people that are going to be developing for Mac a way to make sure you have standard interfaces, APIs, you know, that that gives you the capability to have some commonality across platforms, across applications, and the way things are implemented. So if I'm a, a company that does video analytics, I do people counting, right? And I can build a software interface to the Mech API and be fairly confident that everybody that's implemented Mech um, would have a pretty straightforward integration with my technology. Is that correct? For the most part. And I would probably defer. One of my colleagues actually sits on the chair for Etsy Mech. And uh, I would always defer to him to, uh, to answer those questions. But in the basic sense, yes, I think that that's what it allows for. Now, there's always going to be each vendor or each uh, provider solution or implementation of, of Mac. So those interfaces are defined by Etsy Mac. You may find that there are some variations, and that's why I'm kind of um, 
you know, we're walking around that one a bit. Yeah. And, and actually, I wasn't trying to take us into the weeds there. What I was trying to get at was this this pretty powerful idea that there is an interface that's programmatic between the radio network, the private network, or even the public network, if, if that's the application, that would allow me as a video analytics company to really specialize in video analytics and not have to know anything about the wireless network, really, just to be able to talk to some interface to say, okay, send me a video feed and let me do something with it and alert somebody or whatever the action is. And and I think having those interfaces defined, whether it's a public standard or a private standard or or a proprietary extension to a public standard, I mean, whatever it is, as long as, as most of the code I've already written can still reapply, it feels very powerful and it feels kind of game-changing. But I want your perspective on that. Right. In the in the essence of, you know, pretty much applications, they for the most part should be agnostic to the hardware or to the to the architecture. And so, you know, in that sense, it, it comes down to the ability of being able to if if there is an API that has to be written to interface, usually it's something around a control mechanism or a monitoring management mechanism. And those are usually within the application some of the APIs that might have to conform to like an Etsy Mac. But in, in the true sense, for most applications, you should be able to run many applications agnostic to the architecture or to the standards, in my opinion. Yeah. And and that's super powerful as a solution architect because you have lots of vendors that you can pick and choose from to complete an entire solution for the end customer. Absolutely. And I wanted to get back because you were asking why Mac, right? And and so a couple of reasons. It's from a solution provider or, or from a network provider, we, you know, because you have kind of the network edge and then you have the customer edge. So you kind of have two areas where you can place place the devices. It could, you know, if you go in the network provider edge, they're going to be placing devices within their own network. And when we say Mac, multi-access, you know, it could be wired, could be wireless, could be whatever connectivity, that's where the multi-access comes into play. A lot of it is tied around cellular networks because you know today a lot of companies do already have Wi-Fi networks. So they could implement edge solutions using their own existing networks. But with Mac, it's, it's really coming from the network provider as a solution for their customers to bridge the gap between the cellular network and the enterprise network. So the customer's enterprise network. So if you think about today in cellular networks, all the data that's coming across the cellular network, if I take a, a campus or an arena and they have cellular services for customers that come into that arena, all the cellular traffic today without Mac doesn't allow any of that data to traverse into that customer's enterprise network. Mac gives them the bridge. That's right. It, it, might, it might go through Dallas. Well, right. It, it stays on the, the service provider's cellular network. With Mech, that gives you the bridge and gives you the ability to traverse and hand off any of certain traffic. It has to be determined by you know the customer and the network provider on what that traffic's going to be. Let's use the video analytics example. If, if I have a camera that's connected over five, 4 or 5G to the cellular network, how do I get that onto the enterprise network? You have to have a bridge, and that's where the Mech device comes into play. Yeah, so an example of the stadium, I've got a bunch of wireless cellular wireless access points, so I want my 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 fans to have great cellular service uh, in my stadium, but I'm also going to use that network for my security cameras and the security camera data, I don't want it going on 
the public network. I want it to stay in my facility. I want it routed into my my uh, video analytics servers on the facility or nearby, and I want my on-site security people to have access to that. Um, and and mech and the surrounding technologies are what makes that happen. That's really powerful. So let's switch a little. So Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So Hewlett Packard. Enterprise has been around a long time. Uh, well, actually, Hewlett Packard Enterprise hasn't been around that long, but Hewlett Packard is the company around that long, and and Hewlett Packard Enterprise is among other things in the business of making servers. And as I understand it, that Hewlett Packard recognized that there was a unique set of needs in edge environments, and you have a whole product line on on that of edge servers. Can you tell us a little bit more about what where that thinking came from and what solutions? Uh, your company has developed to address the the unique needs. Absolutely, and you know when we talk about our edge products, it's our edge line product line. It really started when we had, if you look at the different industries, and and my background's telco, but let's go outside and look at other industries. You get into manufacturing, you get into oil and gas, etc. And you know a lot of devices that are generating data, typically were analog, have moved to the digital age, you know, so you have, you know, programmable logic controllers, you have smart motors, smart pressure sensors, whatever it may be that's in the industry. And you now have the need to be able to take, collect and process that data at the edge and create a real-time loop that, for example, if I have a motor that's being monitored and let's say it's in an oil and gas industry and those motors are expensive, very expensive, and they're out on an oil rig, that are very far away from you know the mainland. The oil and gas customer wants to be able to look at those devices and understand what's happening with with their uh, their products. And so, you take an edge device that's been developed for those types of environments. So you can't necessarily take a data center server and stick it out on an oil rig. You know, it's it's a harsh environment. Um, the the space, the cooling, all of that's re- that's required for a data center server may not be applicable in in that type of environment. So, we looked at it to say, how do we develop a a system that's hardened, that can withstand the environmental uh, impacts, that's a small form factor, and is you know capable of operating within the customer's requirements for those types of locations, and so you. You do that by developing a new, whole new product set, and that's where EdgeLine came in. So we have um, a few products that fit different needs, everything from entry-level compute all the way up to a high-end compute that leverage a lot of the latest processors available in the regular data center servers. And so you can run the applications that you typically run in the data center, but now you can run them at the edge. And, and that's where our EdgeLine product line really fits. So when I when I think of um, data centers and, and and servers in general, I mean one of the trends in data centers environments is the amount of processing capability, storage capacity, you know, GPUs, all these things are getting very very dense. You can be able to get a lot of compute in a small form factor, and one of the trends that that's driving it's requiring very sophisticated critical infrastructure for some of these very high-end servers, uh, like the kinds that run in, in, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Google and and something like that. And these critical environments, you know, they are, they've got very sophisticated cooling systems, airflow systems, all these things, which at the bottom of an oil rig might be inappropriate. And so is it the case that the edge line servers have contemplated not being in these very 
sophisticated data center environments, but out in locations and environments where it's not nearly as uh, predictable. Um, is that the case, or do, or do I need a, a mini data center environment in you know in my next to my my oil rig? So it depends, right? And if we're looking at let's say we'll take a hundred systems that are operating to maintain all the the pumps and systems at an oil rig, right? And I want to collect all of the the sensor data from each of those pumps. You might place an edge device within relative proximity to where those pumps exist. But then you may also have a, a mini data center sitting elsewhere where you're going to do the edge processing on that one device connected to the pumps. And it's going to send real-time data back to be able to provide either predictive analytics or maybe a pump fails and it's able to redirect to, a, to another pump. But then you're going to have data that's still coming off of there that needs to go back for more longer-term analytics or reporting capabilities that might go into more of a data center function. You know, in the oil rig case, or maybe in a, in a manufacturing facility, you might have a small data center pod or something that would be also be tied to that in the overall solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and, and I think that that lines up uh, really sensibly with some of the conversations that, that we have in the industry around, uh, you know, it's, it's, well, in some ways, I, I talk about like we, five years from now, we might not actually be talking about edge anymore. It's all going to be part of the internet. And really, there is a continuum from the device all the way back to some centralized cloud that might be in Seattle or Washington or something, right? And that really our challenge as practitioners in this world is to build the the tooling and distribute these systems so that you can literally say, well, okay, I've got three services I need to process this analytics data. Some of it I have to have right next to the device, right? Some of it, either because the data is too expensive to transport or too proprietary and I need secure or whatever reason. And then I have, you know, something maybe it's a little bit closer, but it's a data center environment, but it's a constrained environment. So I can't, I can't scale up infinitely. It's just kind of what is what it is, right? It's at full capacity. And then I might have some cloud resources. And some of those cloud resources might be in, you know, service provider edge locations. So part of the infrastructure side of the last mile network. And some of them might be in just traditional cloud data centers. And I'm actually computing across that entire spectrum and delivering a service that has optimal placement of workloads and you know is using each type of facility for what it's best at. And I guess I missed the question. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a question. Oh, I was, okay. I was... <laughs> no, very, very good points. Yeah. Do you agree? <laughs> That's the question. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think I think you hit a lot of the good points. Um, because really, I mean, when we look at what's happening across the world is, you know, take the internet. I mean, it, it is a conglomeration of networks. You know, it started off, you know, as just a couple of universities starting to communicate and it, it grew, you know, exponentially. And when you look at, I mean, what we're doing today with just video conferencing, I don't know where things are connecting, right? But somehow it's happening. And so same thing with the edge and the, the cloud and the data center and the, you know, other, you know, mini clouds or whatever you might have in place it is going to be part of an overall solution that needs to you know have you need to look at what is really the application that's going to be running or set of applications or platforms 
and what are the requirements for each? So some things will operate in the data center, some will operate in the cloud, and some will be at the edge. And you're going to use all of those as a tool set to be able to develop the overall solution. So I think you hit on a lot of good points. One of uh, the things that I'm continually fascinated by is all the activities in the ecosystem that are contributing to a much more accelerated realization of value. You know, the sort of business schooly ways, time to value, right? And that's like, I have this idea, I want to automate my factory, or I want to, you know, automate my precision agriculture. And is that a decade long problem? Or is that a, a quarter long problem? And I think five years ago, it was probably a decade, it felt like a decade long problem. And now it's feeling more like a, like a quarter problem. And I think part of that is what we talked about earlier. It's like open source, right? There's lots of pieces that are being built for me that have been built for me that I can leverage. I can stand on the shoulders of those giants and implement a lot of the solutions. And my my vendor suppliers can implement a lot of those solutions. And that gives me faster time to market and flexibility and the knowledge that you know, I can switch vendors potentially if that needs if that's an important criteria for me. So I've got all of those components, but there's another component that I think is really interesting and that is the business models. And I think there's two really big contributors to a substantial shift in business. Well, there might be more, but these are two that I think about. One of them is the economics of shared infrastructure. And what I mean by that is, I mean, just take the cloud example. The fact that that I can share a cloud computer with 10 other people or 100 other people and only have to pay for that fraction that I use means it fundamentally changes the economics of how I deploy compute. Because not only to mention that, because I'm sharing the infrastructure, but there's another piece too, which is I don't actually have to buy the infrastructure. And those of us who are in the business of building and deploying infrastructure ourselves, meaning like Vapor.io, we build our own data centers, we lease the land, we put the building on it, we trench the fiber, right? We do all these things. Like we're used to building this infrastructure and then uh, selling it or leasing it in pieces to our customers. But servers outside of the cloud environment have never really been purchased that way. And you mentioned before the interview that Hewlett Packard Enterprise is on a path to deliver everything it does as a service. And how, how do you deliver computers as a like physical computers as a service? How does that done? Right. So it becomes a kind of a, a model that we put together that allows customers to be able to consume only the resources they need. And by doing so, we work with the customer on developing a, a plan that looks at what is their immediate need for servers. So let's say they need 10 servers. And we also look out into the future for, for a forecast to, to say, how many servers do you think, you know, you're going to need over the course and, and maybe looking, you know, every quarter or whatever it is. And they're going to pay for an upfront cost of what kind of infrastructure they need. And we can put it into a, you know, a, a monthly model to just to consume just like you would the cloud, you know, you, you pay your, your bill monthly, but then we're going to monitor that their usage and we're not monitoring the the actual data that they put on there. We're monitoring the server performance, the server capacity, et cetera. The value that I'm getting out of it. Yeah, exactly. And we're looking at what is the utilization of that infrastructure that that, that customer is consuming. If they're consuming 80% of that infrastructure day one, we're also going to implement additional capacity up front to be able to give them the capability to grow beyond that you know, 10 servers. So instead of 10 servers, we might put 15 servers in up front, right? 
So they have an extra window to be able to grow immediately. And as soon as they start using it, then, then they're going to pay for it. That's part of the GreenLake model. But the other part is that capability to be able to consume it on a, on a monthly you know, pay-as-you-go type charge. So the, the whole GreenLake model is around what we call flexible capacity, which is what I kind of described there, where it's you know a, a bit up front and then use as you grow. And if, if you don't, like let's say, um, think, of, think of the consumers where it's based on the retail market and things fluctuate from, you know, the holidays gets really busy and then, you know, you have the lulls, right? So in those models, a GreenLake model is, or a flex capacity model is a really good fit because they're going to pay for what they need during those really, really busy times. And then when they're in a lull, they can scale it back. So that's interesting. So it's, it's, it is really almost like how I pay for a cloud provider. Like I can scale up and scale down to, to some extent. I mean, if I've only got 15 servers or deployed, there's as high as I can go. But, I, but what I pay to Hewlett Packard can scale up and down based on the seasonality of my business. Is that what I'm hearing? To some degree, within you know cer- certain parameters, but you know other customers that aren't so fluctuate, they, they don't fluctuate so much. If you take a new platform, when I was doing network planning, sometimes you just don't know how much capacity you're going to need up front. The launch of the iPhone caused AT and T just you know numerous amounts of network expansion because of the popularity, and so when you start a new platform and you just don't know what the capacity is going to be, you have to start somewhere. With GreenLake, that gives our customers the ability for us as a vendor to supply them infrastructure on an as-needed basis. So we're going to give them X amount of capacity up front. And if they start consuming more, we're going to monitor it based on the performance and the KPIs of that infrastructure. And we can bring more infrastructure in. It's not just infrastructure. It's the services that we provide at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. It's Rodney Richter on demand. <laughs> yes. Um, no, we have a whole point next services team that can do you know, support services as well as um, uh, services for deploying the infrastructure and um, monitoring and management, et cetera. So that's all part of that GreenLake model to be able to do that as a service. and. You know, we are the edge to cloud company that's offering everything as a service. And that's what HPE is about right now. That's really, that's really neat. And the other thing that's, I think, pretty cool about that is um, it feels to me like the customer relationship is profoundly different because it sounds like Hewlett Packard's taking some risk. Like you're taking some financial risk in, and I am too, I've got some upfront fees, but you're taking financial risk in forward deploying capacity that you anticipate me using, but not necessarily on the time scale that would be ideal for your quarterly financials. And so we're sharing an outcome, which is a, a really nice way to have a relationship with a vendor, I think. Is that, are you finding that that's um, something that customers are, are getting excited about? So I can't speak to the financial aspects. I'll leave that to my leadership. <laughs> but uh, I, I think customers are excited that you know it's a new way of doing business. And it gives them new capabilities that they didn't have before. Before, it was always pretty much a capital purchase. I need X amount of, of infrastructure and, oh, by the way, my budget says I have you know this amount of capital and yeah, I'm gonna have to spread that out over the next couple of years. And put it on my, on my balance sheet and depreciate it and all that other stuff, yeah. Exactly, so, so now they can look at it and say, rather than come up with a very large sum of money upfront, they could pay and turn it from a CapEx to an OpEx model, pay per month for the infrastructure that they need right now, and then pay a little bit more if they use more, pay a little bit less if they use less. 
that's the beauty of it is it gives them that flexibility and really gives them more of a cloud-like experience. And we can do this on-prem and we can do it off-prem. So if a customer wants to put it into like a, a vapor IO data center or you know a hosted data center, we can put our infrastructure there and host it for the customer. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think it's a, it is a profound difference because it is, uh, I mean, the whole world is moving towards as a service. And, you know, I think about, I don't want to own any servers. I want the people that know how to, how to maintain and, and replace and do all it to own servers. And so it, it seems like a really good division of labor, you know, back to this like core business principle, which is like, I want to focus on the things that are most differentiated. And honestly, competing against Hewlett Packard, so to speak, in racking and stacking and operating and financing servers just doesn't make any sense. So I'd rather be a partner of yours. And when I say competing, I don't really mean competing because I might buy them from you anyway. But you know what I'm saying? It's it's like that is really an expertise that you're building and you're driving all the, the efficiency into that. So you're going to be able to operate, maintain and supply servers a lot better than I am, I think. I think that's that's how I would look at it. Yeah, I mean, then that's what we do as a business, right? I mean, that's that's our bread and butter is servers, server storage, networking. And, you know, and we've also expanded out to, you know, um, we've acquired a few additional companies over the last couple of years to really expand our portfolio and really bring a a solution level to the customer. And, you know, part of GreenLake is not just infrastructure. It is it could be infrastructure as a service. It could be platform as a service. It really depends on what the customer is looking for. And, um you know, we also partner with a lot of different companies to be able to bring in the different applications and the total solution to the customer. Great. Now, let's, now I'm going to ask you to, to take off your HPE hat and put on your member of the ecosystem, LF Edge participant hat. And you, you think about the dynamic between the cloud providers and the telcos. And this is really interesting to me, where they seem to really need each other, but they also seem wary of potentially competing with each other. And I'm wondering if you have a perspective on on that dynamic and how you think it might net out. Well, I agree with you that, you know, they, they kind of need each other um, in that, you know, with a lot of the cloud capabilities that are out there. I mean, I, I think most of the service providers are leveraging all different types of technology, including cloud. And so that's one aspect of it. So they're, they're already using cloud and, and many different types of the big cloud providers. But at the same time, you're seeing the cloud providers come in and provide various different services that do compete with those service providers. Take Edge, for example, you know, and I don't know if we want to go into specifics, but, you know, Google Cloud Platform, um, uh, AWS Outpost, you know, those types of Edge services. I shouldn't say Google Cloud Platform, it's uh, Google Anthos, I think is what it is. But um, either either way, you know, bringing the cloud services on-prem and you know, in some ways, providing solutions that a service provider might provide, you know, like multi-access edge compute, for example, you know, that could be one area where they may compete. Or you start looking at any of the applications that typically a service provider, a telco provides, voicemail services, um, any of the data processing capabilities that, that you find today from those service providers, some of the cloud providers are moving in those directions. And so, yeah, I think there is some competition there. And um, so it is it is kind of a give and take between the two. Yeah, it, it feels overall healthy to me. Yeah, because the other, the other thing is, you know, you think about Outpost, you think, well, on the surface, it might be competitive, but I could become an Outpost reseller. 
right? Because I've got the field sales team. I'm going to build the wireless network potentially that services that wherever those outposts are going to go, I can deliver potentially an end-to-end solution with Outpost or with Hewlett Packard Enterprise or whatever. So that's, that is sort of interesting. So on, on the edge computing front, what are you seeing as the types of use cases that are getting traction today? Like where's the money seem to be going and how is that changing? In some ways I'm uh, thinking, because I, I, I work specifically in telco and you know at least within the, the service providers, the network edge is a lot. And then the work that they're doing to offer mech to their, their customers. But as I've talked with, we'll say the end clients, as I've gone to some conferences and, and met with various different industry clients, I found that everybody's looking for, you know, ways to optimize their business that, you know, as they invest in edge, it's what can they do different? How do they make it more efficient? And I think a lot of it, manufacturing is, is big. Oil and gas is big. We're starting to see it in retail and hospitality, um, looking at things and ways to automate at the edge to be able to do things that, I mean, they've been done before, but haven't been done as quickly or as efficiently. And so, um, you know, a lot of those areas, a big one, um, racing industry is actually using edge computing to improve how they look at the the cars that are being, you know, developed and and tweaked for the racetrack. And they use sensors on the cars to be able to go around the track and collect the data and then refine how they're they're tweaking the cars for the race. So I mean an an F1 car is just a a factory for delivering speed around a track. And you can see how those applications that are developed in that very, very bespoke and uniquely competitive environment will make their way into traditional manufacturing. That's that's a neat. That's I'm gonna have to look into that more. That's a that's a that's a, a neat application of edge computing is in is in racing. It is, and it's exciting, <laughs> exciting sport. So great to watch and great to uh, be involved with. So yeah, and and where where do you see edge computing going over the next eighteen months? Over the next 18 months, I think um, we're going to see the evolution of of the network edge a lot more. I think from, you know, at least in the open source community, a lot of applications and platforms being developed that are going to help move things forward, especially from evolving from some legacy platforms and seeing the data move from the data center out to the edge. You were talking on your state of the edge previously about the amount of infrastructure and data that's going to move to the edge over the, what was it? I'm looking back at your notes. Server storage infrastructure needed to support edge $700 billion and 200,000 megawatts of compute power needed. What was that time frame? Uh, 10 years. <laughs> 10 years. Okay. So so we're talking 18 months. I mean, it's going to probably be a, a big chunk because we've already been on the edge journey for some time. HPE started the edge journey um, probably one of the first companies to do so. So we've been in, in the edge business for quite a few years now. And I just see the next 18 months just starting to explode, really. I mean, customers that are going to either implement it at their customer sites or they're going to be using it at the network edge. We're recording this in the middle of the COVID lockdown. And it certainly, my conversations have indicated that a lot of these edge computing automation capabilities are the spending on that is being accelerated are you seeing the same thing to some degree i mean covid did uh 
caused some pauses in some of the the projects, at least um, the ones that I've been involved with. But you know, a lot of that has to do with you know you, when you consider just general business disruption. Just yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you don't have people going you know out like they did before, especially in the public spaces. But now there is you know we're starting to see customers spend more for how we operate in a new COVID environment where you you want to be able to provide the resources to your customers in a different fashion where they're no longer necessarily on site, especially security is a big one. You know, you now have facilities that aren't as populated as before. So, you know, you may still need to monitor those facilities in real time to be able to know what's going on, especially with the climate and the, the, uh, what's happening around the nation, you know, we want to be able to make sure our, our facilities are secure. Think about a facility that's been sitting for a while. It has nobody in it. You know, the, probably the air conditioning systems or something that's been shut down. Is the air quality in there good for people to return to, to the office? Um, do you need to do any monitoring there? And once people start coming back, do you need to monitor? I, I got a, a one that's, that's actually a, a good use case that we're hearing about. And that's, you, know, you go to the, the the hospital or you go to your doctor and they they measure your temperature before you walk in you know and it's somebody standing there waiting well what if you could automate that you should be able to right yeah, just exactly cameras can sense infrared yeah exactly so you have a camera that that takes your temperature that um, there's mask detection to make sure people are wearing masks there's yeah. um, there's all kinds of things that can be done with video analytics to be able to do that amp and it's not just being able to sense it through a video it's being able to then what do you do with it? Actuate something, yeah. Actuate, yeah. So um, touchless um, access entry to to a building. I was working with one company where that's what they do. They do video analytics and their whole building is is automated to where they just do facial recognition. So th- so my face is my ID card into the building? It, exactly. And, it, and if you have a mask on, they can even detect whether or not you're who you are based, I mean, there's certain characteristics that they look for, but it's very interesting, you know, technology that they have. Well, I was told by a video analytics uh, person, this was years ago, but that they actually can detect people individually by the way they walk, by their gait. So it's not, you, you can do facial recognition, but you can also do like ambulatory recognition, which just seems completely fascinating to me. Like we're entering a, a completely new world. It's really interesting. That, that is amazing. Yes. Yeah. So Rodney, I really appreciate you joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. We didn't get to half of what I was hoping to talk about, but we've, we've, we've filled the hour. Um, if people want to get a hold of you online, what's the best way to do that? Um, they can reach me via my email address, rodney.richter at hpe.com. That's probably the easiest way. I'm also on LinkedIn, so feel free to reach out. And Matt, thanks for hosting and having me on the show. Yeah, you bet, Rodney. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Take care. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Packet, an Equinix company, makes infrastructure a competitive advantage for the leading companies of the world with globally available, developer-friendly, bare metal, and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem of networks, software, and solution partners. Packet is on a mission to protect, connect, empower the digital world with infrastructure that moves at software speed. 
Learn more and view open job listings at packet.com.